Change our heart, O Lord, make it ever thine. Thank you, Beth. Take your Bibles and turn with me, if you would, to the seventh chapter of John's Gospel. We have been for about a month and a half in chapter six, or maybe a little longer than that. Now we come to chapter seven, and a little bit of a change in the direction of Christ's ministry, a little bit of a change in direction of how the Apostle John is presenting him to us. You remember from the very beginning, uh, we talked about how at the end of this book, John is going to tell us why he wrote it. He's going to say, I'm writing this as you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God. I'm writing this so that you may know who Jesus is. That's That's the thrust of the whole book. He wants throughout this whole thing for us to see and us to believe and us to understand who Jesus is. Now, one of the things you're going to see here is some Uh, something that sounds almost contemporary, almost to today, about a misunderstanding of who he is, and we'll talk about that as we get to it. But I want you to hear how John presents this as they're they're about to enter into the time of the Feast of the Tabernacles. Now, that was typically around September, October, somewhere in there, so we're not a whole lot behind in time frame. That's when this was actually taking place. And the Feast of the Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths, as it is also called, was a time of celebrating God's provision for the children of Israel while wandering in the wilderness all those years. They lived in tents. They lived in tabernacles. They lived in in temporary dwelling places. And and throughout all that time, God provided for them, whether it be the manna to eat or, or protection from all the natural enemies that were there. God was providing. And so every year they had the Feast of Booths where they celebrated that. And we'll talk more about that uh, in the weeks to come. But as we see him actually speaking there in, the, in Jerusalem at the Feast of Tabernacles. But today it's, it's sort of a preliminary. Uh, his family, whom he's with right now, his brothers and, and sisters, his natural, I guess you would say, step family, if you want to look at it technically true, uh, are, are, he's with them and preparing to, uh, to go. They're preparing to go up to Judea, uh, Judea to, the, uh, uh, to the Feast of Tabernacles. And, and here's what John records for us in verses 1 through 13. After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Feast of the Jews, the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles, was near. Therefore his brothers said to him, Leave here and go into Judea, so that your disciples also may see your works which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, allow yourself uh, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers were believing in him. So Jesus said to them, My time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. Having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as if in secret. So the Jews were seeking him at the feast and were saying, where is he? Where is this one we've heard about? Why is he not here celebrating? Basically is what they're saying. This is a major feast of the Jews. Why is this Jesus not here? Where is he? 
there was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying, he is a good man. But others were saying, no, on the contrary, he is deceiving, he is leading the people astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. This is the word of our Lord. You know, we, we see here sort of a, a double-edged sword, if you will, as, as Jesus begins to prepare Understand he is moving now for the first time out of, or for the last time really, out of Galilee before the cross. He, in the latter part of this passage we just read, we'll see him leaving Galilee, moving toward Jerusalem, moving toward the cross, moving toward his purpose. But, but the thing you first notice here is, is a real misunderstanding between his family, who John says, listen, they didn't believe in him anyway, his, his family who are encouraging him to do something, and Jesus recognizing that there's a matter of time here that, it's import, that is important to be understood. Jesus always operated on a very particular and very strict timetable. It, it wasn't his own in, in a strict sense of the word. It certainly that wasn't that of his brothers and sisters. It wasn't that of his disciples, and it wasn't that of the, of the leaders in the Jewish religion or the Roman authorities. He never operated as they wanted him to. It says here he wasn't going into Judea because the leaders were already plotting to kill him. Now, we recognize that that was the purpose all along. We understand that, that Jesus knew that he came into the world for the sole purpose of going to the cross and dying. But yet he makes clear here to his brothers, my time is not yet. My time has not yet come. If you look in the New Testament, one of the things you find very clearly is that Jesus' steps were ordered by God's plan from beginning to end. From the time he was born in the manger that we'll celebrate during Advent and, and start talking about next week through the Advent Reef, uh, talking about his coming in that manger in Bethlehem, all the way up to the cross and the resurrection and ultimately ascension back into heaven, you recognize that God, Jesus is always operating according to God's plan. Now, at this particular point, it appears that Jesus' brothers come to him and, and they say, look, the Feast of the Tabernacles is coming. There are going to be great crowds there. There are going to be a lot of people who have heard rumors about you down here in Galilee. They've heard about the wedding at Cana. They've heard about the man who picked up his, his uh, pallet and walked. They've heard about all these miracles that you've been doing. And listen, we can go now up to Judea, and there is a mass of people that are going to be there, and you can show yourself, you can demonstrate yourself very clearly to them. You can go and show them who you are. Perhaps his brothers and some others, maybe even his disciples, had perceived what had happened in chapter 6 and the beginning of chapter 7 as sort of a sagging in his popularity. Perhaps they perceived that when those disciples, those who had followed and heard him and sought after him because of the miracles and, and liked being fed when the 5,000 were fed. And, and now when he says to them, listen, if you want to follow after me, then you must eat of my body. You must eat of my body and drink of my blood. That's the only way you'll have anything to do with me and the only way I'll have anything to do with you. And the people turned and said, this is a hard thing to hear. This is very difficult. And they stopped following. Multitudes did. So maybe his disciples and his brothers saw that as sort of a sagging in his population. And they said, listen, we can be a good PR firm for you. We know where the people are. 
And, and listen, if you want to be known by the masses, you ought to go where the masses are. If you want to be accepted by the masses, then you ought to go where they are and show yourself. Let's go up to the Feast of Tabernacles. Let's go up to the Feast of Booths and, and just do a miracle or two there. You know, Do a couple of things that will really dazzle the people again, and you'll have the crowds moving after you and pursuing you like you have in the past. Don't you want to go and set the stage right? for being popular and being well-known. Now, we realize John makes clear that his disciples and his brothers, particularly his motives, the brothers' motives, weren't exactly thinking about what was best for Jesus because it says they didn't even believe in him anyway. It said they had not believed in him. They didn't know who he was. It's amazing. We'll talk about that in a minute. But it's amazing that they could have spent from the time they were born in the same household with him, they could have seen how he entered his ministry, they'd seen how he lived, and seen there was something vastly, incredibly different about him, and yet still didn't believe. But the scripture says, John says, that's exactly what took place. So he said he wasn't willing to go because the, 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 the leaders those who were uh, the, the Jews, and the Jews there probably means the leaders. Later it refers to the people, and that's probably the masses. But the Jews were seeking to kill him, and his time had not yet come. The New Testament throughout is filled with references to his time or his hour. Uh, through this gospel, you can look in chapter 2, verse 4, 7, verse 30, 8, verse 20, 13, verse 1, 17, verse 1. And over and over again, Jesus talks about his hour or his time. And, and of course, in doing that, he's referring to God's plan, God's perfect timing for why he came into the world. He, he wasn't ready to reveal himself. He wasn't ready to be shown. Paul, even in writing to the Galatians, said in Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5, when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Paul says it's all a matter of proper, perfect time. It's all about being done in God's time, when God sins, when God determines, not how man wants to do it, and certainly not how his unbelieving brothers want to do it. We could go on and cite many other verses. I think of, of Acts chapter 2. We talked about it last week briefly when, when Peter preached that great sermon on the day of Pentecost. And he said, listen, this man whom you put to death by guilty hands, by, by the foreordained counsel of God, the purpose of God, but you are responsible for it, this man you put to death was done at exactly the right time, exactly in the perfect plan. Not expedited and not limited in any way by man's purpose and man's desire. A lot of verses talk about the time being just right. But, but there are several things we can determine from understanding this whole idea of the concept of time. And realize time, he's talking about for us. Certainly with God, time is not an issue. With God, time is, is not a, a matter. It, 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 he is timeless. He is eternal. But for us, time is something that figures greatly into it. But in talking about time and about his hour and about the importance of those, there are several things about time we can come to some important conclusions about. One is that the death of our Lord was the most important event of his life. 
The, the death of our Lord was the most important event of his life. That's why he said, I can't go into Judea right now openly because the Jews are seeking to kill me and it's not yet time. There is going to be a time when that will take place. That time is not yet. And it was eternally planned by God's purpose and God's plan. Not only his death, but also the details of his death and other minutiae of his birth and life were similarly planned by God. He was born in Bethlehem, according to the prophecy of the Old Testament. God purposed that, foretold that, planned for it. All of the things that he did, giving sight to the blind, raising the dead, healing the the lame, all of those things were were purposely planned by God to begin this movement toward understanding the significance of that final event, that most important event, the event of his death. When Jesus came to earth, he was very conscious that the events of his life were marked out for him by God. And since these things are true, it follows that everything planned by God for Jesus Christ is revealed to us in the, and, and is revealed to us in the Scriptures is perfectly and has been perfectly accomplished. That's what John wants us to see. God is at work. God is unfolding. And he's doing it in a perfect and a clear way for us to be able to see. See who he is. So time to Jesus, time to the, to the plan of salvation is a very, very important concept. But then you get down to the last part of this passage that we looked at today, and you find Jesus having said, I'm not going to go. Then in verse 10, after his brothers had gone, then, then he went up to the feast. But he went, as it were, in secret. Now, John doesn't elaborate on that. I don't know if he put on some kind of disguise uh, like we would tend to want to do today. You know, in, in watching things, you see people disguise themselves and change their appearance a bit in order to go. I don't know if it was that or he just kind of quietly entered the city. But one thing you find out when you get there is that even though he was not there publicly and even though he's not there to do miracles and to, do, uh, to, to dazzle the people with what he could do miraculously, that the people were talking about him. Where is he? Where is this one Jesus? It's a big time. It's a big feast. It's it's a a big celebration. Why is he not here with us? Where is he? And they start looking around. And Jesus hears the people. They're in secret. They're not publicly. He begins to hear them. And and it says, you know, after verse 10, it says, When his brother's gone, he went up, not publicly, but in secret. So the Jews were seeking him at the feast, and they were saying, Where is he? And there was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Now, the word grumbling there does not necessarily mean they were saying negative things. There was just a lot of chatter. There was a lot of quiet chatter. It wasn't very loud and it wasn't very public because it says they didn't want, they didn't want the authorities, they didn't want the, the, the religious leaders to hear them because they were afraid of what they might think if they were talking about Jesus. And, and so they did, it, they did it themselves quietly, not out in the public, And some were saying, listen, he's a good man. 
mean, he's got to be a good man. He fed 5,000 people. He's got to be a good man. He saw a man by the pool of Bethesda, and he had mercy on him. He told him to take up his mat and walk, and the man who had been lame for all those years got up and walked. He's got to be a good man. He's seen blind, and, and, and he's healed them with their, and given them sight. He's, he went to the wedding at Cana we heard about, and, and the host ran out of wine, and Jesus turned the water out of those ceremonial pots into, into wine, and it was not just any wine. It was better than the first wine. It was the best wine that could have been had. I mean, they've all heard about this, and they all look at him and say, well, he's got to be a good man. Look at the good things he's done. Well, others said, oh, no. On the contrary, oh, contrary, he is a, he's a deceiver. He's leading people astray. He's leading them astray from the law of Moses. He's violating the law. Why? When he told that man that he had compassion on to, to pick up his mat and walk, it was on the Sabbath. The law was very clear. Moses' law was very clear. You don't do work on the Sabbath. And picking up that mat and walking with it was doing work. This man is not a good man. He, he's deceiving people by leading them astray. Or there at the wedding feast of Cana even, he took those pots that were very specifically and purposely put there for the ceremonial washing so that one could wash and go into the wedding clean ceremonially and religiously. And he turned that perfectly good ceremonial water, albeit pretty dirty probably, he turned it into wine and, and they drank it. It's not the purpose of those pots. The purpose of those pots is to wash your hands and wash your face and he defiled that by turning it into wine and having the people drink the wine out of those ceremonial pots. You can go on and on. The biggest complaint about Jesus all through his ministry was, is wait a minute, he is not obeying. He is not following. He is not pushing us forward. He's not leading us into a better obedience to the law of Moses. There's a reason for that. Because everything Moses did and everything he said through the law and everything else was pointing to him, pointing to his coming, pointing to what he would do. Those pots would ceremoniously wash the people and they would be clean until they got dirty again, but he would come and cleanse his people from their sin for all time and all eternity. Everything Moses did was to point people toward this one. There's one impossibility in those verses, folks. Really, there's two impossibilities, but even the positive one is impossible. When he said, he, when they said, he is a good man. Here's a man who broke the law of Moses according to the law. That's not a good man. Here's a man who said, I and the Father are one. I am God. I am divine. That's not a, a good thing. It's like, it's like Lewis said, unless the speaker of these words is God, this really is so preposterous as to be comic. If the speaker who says, I am the bread of life, eat of me and you'll never hunger. If the speaker says, I am the living water, if you drink of me, you'll never thirst again. If the speaker who says, I am the one that comes down out of heaven to give life is not God himself, then it's almost comical what this person is saying. But, but today, even in our day-to-day, -day, people are still saying that, aren't they? Some are saying, oh, he's really a good man. He really is a good man. But, but 
But this good man claimed to forgive sin, not just sin against himself. You know, we, we can kind of look at somebody who's hurt us and say, okay, I forgive you. You sinned against me. You hurt me. You, you spoke against me. I forgive you. We do that all the time. That's not what he did. He said, rise up because your sins are forgiven. Sins against other people, sins against God. Your sins are forgiven. A, a good man doesn't do that. I don't go around absolving people of their sins. I don't have the authority except in Christ. He claimed to forgive sins. And on many occasions, he claimed to be the great I am. The choir sang that last week. You know, the great I am. That's who Jesus said, I am. I am the one who spoke out of the bush to Moses. I am the one who came down out of heaven. I am he. I'm not just a good guy. I'm not just a, a nice fellow. I'm not just a, a, a fabulous miracle worker. I am that I am. And the emphasis here and the, the implication here is by John, you got to see that. You've got to see that he's not just another good person. You've got to see that he's not just another prophet. You've got to see that he's not just somebody who does religious things. I mean, if he were not God, he, he's somewhat egocentric to a fault. If, if he's not God, how can he go around saying, believe on me? Trust in me. I came down out of heaven. I took on flesh. And I'm living among you as God in the flesh. People said, oh, he's a good man. Others said he's, on the contrary, he's, he leads people astray. He's deceiving people. He's moving them from the law of Moses. Yet no one was talking about this openly because they feared the leaders. They talked quietly. They grumbled quietly. They spoke in the shadows about who this one Jesus really is. Jesus is going to give a, a discourse, a message at the Feast of Tabernacles, and we'll see that coming in the next few weeks, over the next few weeks. But I want you to see several things about these first 13 verses that I think are imperative for us to understand. Three things by way of conclusion. Number one, We've got to observe in this passage the desperate hardness and unbelief of human nature. It really is. Human nature, left to itself, will not believe. It's hard. It cannot see that Christ is the Son of the living God. Jesus said in, back in verse 65 that we read earlier, you know, no one can come to me unless it's been granted him the Father, unless eyes are open, scales are taken away. This whole idea of the human nature being innately good, as our culture wants to tell us, that, hey, man's really basically good. You know, it's just his education and it's just his, his environment and it's just his surroundings that kind of make him a little... A little questionable, but, but man in his very basic nature is really good. That's not what the Scripture says. And the Scripture is showing us here that basically man, uh, the, the basic nature, human nature, man is hard and unbelieving. So much so that even his brothers who had lived with him, watched him, observed his perfection, no sin, 
no unrighteous anger. His whole family sat there and watched him from the time they were born living with him, and they didn't believe. Have you ever seen somebody and you know they're smart? You know they are. They they make better grades than you do. They have a better job than you do. They can look at a problem and they can solve it just like that. They can can look at things and analyze it and say, this is how things are. I mean, they're, they're just smart people. And yet when you present them with the spiritual truth of Jesus Christ as the Son of God, the only begotten of the Father who came as a sacrifice and a substitute for their sin, they say, whoa, that's a little out there. Oh, I believe Jesus was a good man. He was a prophet. He, uh, you know, I, I don't have anything against Jesus. I, I don't have anything against you believing what you believe about him. But hey, I just, I just don't see that. I don't understand that. It's, it's, it's beyond my comprehension. You ever seen people like that? You go, why don't they, be, why don't they believe? It ought to be as clear as their hand in front of their face, and yet they don't believe. It's because of their sin because of their hardness. It's because of the desperate hardness and unbelief of human nature. Human nature is not good. Human nature is fallen and has to be enlightened by the, the power of God. That's what Jesus is saying here. Second thing in conclusion we see, not only do we see human nature here, but we also see one of the principal reasons why so many people hate Christ. He, he points it out here. He said, you know, you go on up there, you can go. My time is not yet here. Your time is always opportune. In other words, you can go out in the world, do whatever you want to do, show yourself any way you want to. The world is open to you because, here's the reason, the world cannot hate you because you're of it. But it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Whoa. Why do so many people hate Jesus? Because he exposes sin. He exposes sin. He stands there as the perfect, sinless Messiah. He stands there as one who says, you are a sinner and in need of your sins being forgiven. And we live in a world that really doesn't like that word. You go to many churches this morning across this land, across the world, and probably some right here in Somerset, where the concept of sin will be just as foreign as if you were speaking Russian. Sin? It's a horrible thought. It's a very negative thought. We need to be more positive, more upbeat. Let's just talk about love. Let's talk about sin. But Jesus came into the world and he said, The world hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil, that its deeds are sinful. That's why people hate Christ. But Jesus came along and said, Hey, everybody, it's all right. It's cool. Do what you want to do. Live like you want to live. Believe what you want to believe. Follow any path. God, all paths lead to God. Just be happy with that and just... Just go enjoy life. Do whatever you want to do. You're okay. I'm okay. You're okay. Everybody's okay. Everything's fine. People say, man, I, I like that Jesus. He's cool. That's what Oprah said, remember, when, when, when Betty Eddy said she went to heaven and talked to Jesus, and Jesus said, go back and tell everybody that everybody's all right. 
that I'm not the only way, that there are many ways to me, and all you got to do is just go and enjoy life and love one another, and, and everything will be fine. And, and Betty Eddie told Oprah that, and on her show she said, Yes! I knew Jesus was too cool to say he was the only way. So what Betty Eddie had in a dream was negated in Oprah's mind and probably in the mind of millions of people from what Jesus said in his word. He said, I testify that your ways are evil, you're, you're, you're sinful, and you need a Savior. You can't save yourself. You need a Savior. And then, as we've already pointed out, the third conclusion you want to see here is you, you ought to observe in this passage the strange variety of opinions about who Jesus is. They, they were there from the beginning. He's a good man. No, he's a deceiver. He's a prophet. He speaks truth of God, but, but yet he's not fully who he says that he is. I mean, the, it's been there all along. There's nothing new under the sun. So we see that in Jesus' day, they said he's a good man, he's a deceiver, a deceiver. We see all these variety of opinions. But what it really comes down to is what, it, what do you think about Jesus? What, what do you think about Jesus? That's the title of the sermon. What do you think about Jesus? You're sitting here saying, well, I think he's pretty cool, he's a good man. I mean, I'm here, aren't I? Or do you see him as what he said he was? The one come from God whose time would be fulfilled at the cross. Not in defeat, but in victory. Not in failure, but in success. Not in something to be pitied, but something in this day to be rejoiced in. That he was the perfect Lamb of God, the perfect sacrifice, the perfect substitute. That our sins in this perverse and evil generation might be forgiven. And more than just be forgiven, that they might be cleansed away. And not just cleansed away, but replaced in that great exchange from the cross. Him taking our sin and giving us, imputing to us, His righteousness. Something we didn't have. Something we didn't possess. We were like these who said, oh, he's a deceiver, or he's a good man. We don't understand. We were just in our own righteousness, doing our own thing. And Paul says, he who knew no sin became sin, so that we who have no righteousness might become the very righteousness of God. See, the most important question you'll ever answer, the most important thing you'll ever consider and, and many of you here I know already have, and, and that's, that's good. I've already settled that. The most important question you can ever ask is, what do you think of Jesus? And beyond what you think of him, what have you done about that? Have you believed? 
trusted in Him and Him alone. Not in your own righteousness, not in your own goodness, not in your own good deeds, because there are none that would warrant that. But trust in Christ alone. You know, that really is the, that really is the question that, that John, through this entire gospel, wants us to consider, wants us to think about, wants us to ponder, wants us to roll around in our mind and meditate on it and, and chew on it and, and, and focus on it. Because in the final analysis, if you've got a big bank account and a nice, comfortable life and all that this world has to offer, the world's going to love you if that's all you got. But they hated him. And he's going to tell us over and over again in this gospel, they hated me and you're mine and you're following me and you're trusting in me and I'm your Lord, they're going to hate you too. What do you think about Jesus? What do you think about Him? Let's pray. The truth is, life is found in Christ alone. Truth is found in Christ alone. A right relationship with God is found in Christ alone. There is no multiple paths. There is no multiple ways. It's in Christ alone. Not in trying harder or trying to be better. It's in trusting Christ alone. Father, Father, help us think about Jesus this morning. And help us think about him beyond how we've thought about him. Think deeper. Think truer. Lord, even this faith talk that's been prepared for the parents to share with their children, Lord, may our adults even look at that and think through who He is, who you are, and what the implications of that really are. Father, by your Holy Spirit, move in the hearts and lives of men and women here this morning. Be glorified. Be exalted. For we pray in Jesus' name.